Let me invite you now to open your Bibles again to the book of Hosea. And uh, today we're in chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, and I will read some selections from the rest of the chapter. Last week I preached on this entire chapter 2 and sort of gave you a macro, big picture view of what the chapter was saying, but today I'm going to go for some close-ups. I'm going to zero in on and focus on some verses that I think uh, are, have such potency and beauty that they have refreshed my soul and encouraged me, and I want to, of course, preach that to you. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in chapter 2, verse 14. And when you read the therefore in, in the Bible, it is always a good question to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And so let me look back up at chapter, 18, uh, chapter 13 because you won't get the drama of chapter four, uh, verse 14 until you see something of the nature of what comes before. God has had it with Israel. He is, for all practical purposes, the northern kingdom he is divorcing her. He is setting her apart, and his judgment is going to fall upon them in the worst conceivable ways. And look at verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, in this entire book, God is portraying himself through Hosea as a man who married a promiscuous woman. Some considered her to be a prostitute. And so this is where, through Hosea, God reacts to the lifestyle of unfaithfulness and her whoring after or going after other lovers and forgetting him. And so verse 14 begins, therefore, behold, what you would think would come next is this. I'm going to crush her. I'm going to grind her into powder. I am absolutely going to chew her up and spit her out. Lights out. It's over. She's done. But that isn't what it says, does it? Here we run into one of the most amazing moments in scripture of God's radical grace. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will entice her. I will woo her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at that time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Then look with me also down at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Hosea. We thank you for the life of the prophet and for the word you have revealed through him of your heart towards your people. And Lord, it is both humbling and yet exalting to read this book. And so we pray today that the Holy Spirit will help the preacher as well as the listener grasp something of the beauty and power of this word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so verse 14 begins with the word, I already told you, therefore. And it sort of has a logic to it. The word therefore introduces an action that is the logical consequence of whatever has just been described. An illustration might help. Let's say you walk out this morning and it's raining outside. And you say to yourself, therefore, it's raining, so I'm going to put on my coat, or if I happen to have an umbrella, which nobody does in this town, but if I have an umbrella, I'm going to put that umbrella up to shield me from the rain. So putting on your coat or using your umbrella is a logical consequence of rain. In verse 13, I already told you God had promised to punish her who went after other lovers and forgot me. Then he says, therefore, and again, we would expect desolation and destruction. But instead, we get this. We get the counterintuitive logic of divine grace in which God's judgment becomes the occasion for his mercy. This literary device reflects reality. God's grace is surprising. It is astonishing. It is astounding. It is so unexpected. God's grace is undeserved. God's grace comes as a surprise. It is surprising because God shows grace when and where we know in our heart of hearts he should show judgment. He shows grace to the undeserving. And so God gives us a picture here of his heart towards his people. But I wanted to talk today and sort of draw a circle around this idea because you can't understand the book of Hosea without understanding what I'm about to talk about. And number two, you can't even understand your own life, your own Christian life, your own relationship with God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is better grasped and understood if you understand this concept called the covenant. And I would venture to say most people don't. Why? Because the word covenant is an archaic word. We don't use it a lot unless you're in a homeowner's association in which you have covenants, codes, and restrictions, right? But we don't even use that word anymore. That word has sort of fallen out of our vocabulary. It's an archaic word, and people say, well, come up with another word. But there is no word that can come up and explain what the word covenant actually does. And if you want to understand what a covenant is, look at Hosea and his book as a living picture of the heart of God toward his wife as a, a, a God of the covenant. On the one hand, we notice as we look at the covenant that there is a language of love and intimacy wrapped up in the covenant. And you're seeing that in the passage today. 
You see, for example, personal pronouns. God always says to his people, I shall be what? A God? No. I shall be your God. And you shall be a people? No. You shall be what? My people. It was Martin Luther who said Christianity boiled down to its essence is personal pronouns. Indicating a relationship of closeness and intimacy. Let's say that I'm having a conversation with you and I refer to my Pam. Well, Pam is my wife. And when I call her my Pam, what am I saying? There's a special relationship here. Or I speak of Mary, my daughter, my Mary. I often call her that. I often call Pam, my Pam. Why? Because it represents a personal, intimate, one, I'm her father, the other, I'm her husband. And so they're intimate, close relationships. And so that's the nature of a covenant, at least one part of it. There is a language of that. And so... When you're overhearing somebody you don't even know talk about someone as being my Johnny or my Susie, then you assume they're talking about a child or a spouse or someone close to them. And so another thing you see when you look at the covenant is not only the language of love, but also the language of law. Love and law. And that is a hard thing for all of us to totally grasp and understand. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship more loving and intimate than merely a legal contract or a legal relationship. Yet it's more binding and enduring and accountable than just a personal relationship. The covenant is a stunning blend of both law and love. It is a stunning blend of both. It is stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it is legal. Though voluntary or through voluntary mutual binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances, that is a covenant. Modern society really doesn't have a category for this because we build everything around the uh, experiencing individual self and the happiness and fulfillment of the individual self. And we talk a lot about our individual happiness and our right to individual fulfillment and those rights are absolute and everything else becomes, for me, a means to that end. All institutions, all relationships are simply means to an end to fulfill myself and make myself happy. So in modern relationship or culture, relationships start out like this. Two people look at each other and they say, I will be what I should be as long and to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you're not, I'm out of here. Right? In a covenant, two people look at each other and they say, I will be what I should be whether you're being what you should be or not. And therefore, it's scary to get into a covenant. It only works if both people in a covenant say that 
In a covenant relationship, both have to say, I will be what I should be, even if you're not what you should be. If only one says it, it doesn't work. It can't work. What you have is exploitation. What you have is abuse. If you really do get into a covenant relationship where two parties are saying, you are more important than me. The relationship is more important than my needs. I will be committed to your needs before my needs. I will be committed to the relationship even if it's not meeting my needs in the moment. I give you my independence. I give you part of my freedom as a gift of love. But if one side or the other side are both saying that, that is a far more fulfilling, far more deep and profound, far more life-changing and joyful relationship than a mere consumer relationship. Have you ever heard the statement, I love you so much because you make me feel so good? That's not a covenant. That's I'm in it for me, and as long as you're making me feel good, I'm going to love you. But that's not what a covenant is. A covenant is something far, far more binding than that. Now, not every relationship we have is a covenant relationship. There are some consumer relationships you should have. Like, I go to the Walmart grocery store. I don't want to have a covenant relationship with Walmart. Uh, I go there because they're the closest grocery store to my house. I don't like going to the grocery store. So it's a quick thing for me to do. But I don't want a covenant relationship there might be some wonderful people there, friendly people. But if I find a grocery store that is closer, which I haven't so far, has better prices, I'm out of there, okay? That's a consumer relationship. And plenty of our relationships are like that. I don't want to have a covenant relationship with the IRS. I'll move on. <laughs> but at the other end of the spectrum, you have something called marriage and the relationships between parents and children. You have covenant relationships. And in the middle, you have various kinds of relationships like friendship. The closest friends we have are more covenantal. Some of them not so much. But here's the point. If the most profound, most joyful, most life-changing, most deep and glorious relationships are covenantal relationship, then your relationship with God has to be through and through a covenantal relationship. It has to be. You know what? Till somebody explained this to me, I didn't really understand the gospel. I mean, I was a saved person. Yes, God graciously invaded me and overcame my resistance and my hard heart and drew me to himself. He regenerated me. He gave me faith. He saved me. But I, I, my understanding of the gospel was like swimming in the shallow end of the pool. And, I, and like J.I. Packer said about the uh, knowledge of God, uh, understanding who God is, it, it's shallow enough where children can play in it. It's like the ocean. It's shallow enough where children can play in it. But when you get out into the depths, it's almost bottomless. And that's how the gospel is. But if you want a deeper understanding of your relationship with God, then nothing helps it, in my judgment, more than understanding the nature of covenant. Now, here's the problem. Modern people, as I've said already, have trouble mixing law and love together. What they say is, oh, um, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. 
Sociologists for years now have been finding modern people to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. I believe in God. I want a relationship with God. But I don't want to go to any institution. I don't want to go to a church, a synagogue. I don't want people to tell me what to believe. I don't want to give up my freedom. I don't want to give up my right to determine what is right and wrong for me. I'm an American. In other words, what everybody is saying is, I want a personal relationship with God, but I don't want no covenantal relationship with God. The Bible says that's impossible. God only relates in terms of covenant. Every time he relates to somebody, whether it's Adam or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or David or Moses, it's always covenantal. J.I. Packer said, you look at the Bible and the concept of covenant is so easily overlooked by us. He said, it's like looking at a map of the Pacific Ocean. And over here you have a great big capital P sort of on the map. And a great big capital A and a great big C. And they'll go on and spell out Pacific. And then there are all kinds of islands and stuff that immediately capture your attention. And you don't even see the big print of Pacific. And that is exactly what the covenant concept is in the Bible. Which is why so many of us don't read the minor prophets because they're covenant prosecutors. And they hold us accountable to the terms of the covenant. God only relates in terms of covenant. And so that's point one. A category-busting thing is a covenant relationship, a mixture of law and love that creates the most profound, fulfilling, life-changing relationships and above all is the only way to relate to our God. But there's a mystery surrounding this relationship, this covenantal relationship. What do I mean? Well, all covenants, as you know, have terms or conditions. Because all contracts have terms and conditions. A covenant is more than a contract, but it's not less. It's not less. All contracts have terms or conditions. If you meet the terms or conditions, there are rewards. There are blessings. If you fail to meet the conditions, if you violate the terms or conditions, there are penalties, or in the case of the Bible, curses. There are blessings that go with obedience to the covenant, and there are cursings that go with disobedience to the covenant. So we see that as we look at the concept of covenant, um, there is always conditions given. That we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. The Ten Commandments given to Israel at Sinai are conditions of the covenant. But one of the great mysteries of the Bible is you will read a book like Hosea and it says God will never forgive the one who violates the covenant. His wrath and his zeal were burned against that man. All the curses written in this book, the book of the law, will fall upon him. The Lord will bring disaster according to the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. 
Wait a minute. When you hear God say, I will never forgive you if you break the covenant, all the curses will come down on you. If you violate the covenant, then you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought, Pastor, you tell me every Sunday, God is a forgiving God. And yet, of course, if he's a covenant God, what good is a covenant if you ignore the penalties and say, well, who cares? You like to sin, I like to forgive, in the world wonderfully arranged. At this point, understanding the covenant gets into the very heart of the central mystery of the Bible, and it gets to the very heart of the central message of the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, on every page and in every book, not just some books, not just the Old Testament or the New Testament, but on every page in every book, you have statements like this where God says, I cannot bless disobedient people. I cannot. You must obey. I'm a just judge. I cannot wink at your sin and guilt. An earthly judge uh, who winked at the guilty would be run out of town on a rail, and he should be. How much less can I? So you must obey. I can't overlook it. I can't bless a disobedient people. So there are hundreds of statements like that. That's why people don't read the Old Testament. It's got a lot of them. New Testament, too. Hundreds of statements like that. Some of the statements say, I will never leave you, I'll never give up on you, I will accept you, I will never forsake you, over and over. Those are in the Bible too. So if you read through the Psalms regularly, you get one after the the other in the same Psalm sometimes. You have God saying, I can only bless you if you do this, and other times where God says, I'm going to bless you no matter what you did. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? I had a professor years ago who said this irresolvable tension is the very plot line under all the plot lines of the Bible. So you have love on the one hand and law on the other, and there is an irresolvable, indestructible tension between the two that we will never resolve totally this side of glory. We can't do it. It is the finite grasping the infinite, the sinful grasping after the holy. So if the thing that propels the narrative of the Bible forward, because you see people and you see God's people failing and failing and failing, and then the question comes up, is God going to give up on his people and just accept whatever they do? Then what about his holiness? Or will God just give up on his people? Then what about his faithfulness? If you've never felt that tension, you hadn't read the Bible much. Let me put it to you theologically. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? That's the question. Do the blessings of God come conditionally? You have to be good. You have to fulfill the covenant. Or unconditionally? doesn't matter what you do. You're going to get it anyway. Is it conditional or unconditional? The problem is the Bible over and over and over again seems to give us contradictory answers. And it's so pervasive, it's so apparently irreconcilable that almost every one of us tends to come down on one side or the other. Instead of following the biblical tension, and what do I mean by that? Most people fall into one or the other. 
Most people either read the Bible in what we might call a liberal way, and they say, yeah, you need to obey. Yeah, you should obey. Yeah, you should be good. But in the end, God loves everybody and will accept everybody. And you can't come down on the conservative side, and you can say, well, yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you have to be good or he won't love you. Everybody comes down one way or the other that reads the Bible. Law is the reality and love is secondary. In other words, basically, the promises and blessings of God are conditional or they say this. No, love is more real than law. Love is the important thing. The law is secondary. Therefore, believe the blessings of God are basically unconditional. So everybody, because they don't understand how to resolve this tension at the heart of the covenant, tends to side toward either moralism, toward being Sadducees or a Pharisee, toward basically feeling like I can pretty much live the way I want to ultimately because God is going to love me anyway, or feeling guilt-ridden, condemned, walking around under a cloud of darkness and judgment, thinking to yourself, I can't live up to this tension. I can't live up. And so the Bible doesn't resolve it. All through the Hebrew Scriptures, all through the Old Testament, there's one place where God actually says in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, I said I would never break my covenant with you. Then two verses later he said, I also said, I will not bless you if you disobey me. Michael Wilcock, who's a commentator, wrote a commentary on the book of Judges, puts it like this. It's almost as if God is saying, I have sworn to bless you, and I've also sworn not to bless disobedient people. What is this you have done to me? And by what fearful means do you think I am to solve this situation? Well, how do you resolve it? The second half of verse 13, because the second half of verse 13 says in Judges, that he may be your God as promised you as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where did God take the covenant oath? Where did God take the oath? Where did he take the oath to Abraham? It's in Genesis 15. You're very familiar probably with this passage. And if you understand what happens in Genesis 15, you'll begin to see something of this concept of the very heart of what the Bible is all about. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. But Abraham says, how do I know you will? How can I be sure? And so God says, well, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to kill some animals, and then I want you to cut the animals into pieces. And I want you to arrange the pieces in two rows with an aisle down the middle so you can walk through them. Now, you and I are utterly confused by God telling Abraham to do that, but he wasn't because in those days when a great lord wanted to make a covenant with a peon or a peasant or a lesser vassal or a servant, that's how it was done. That's how you cut a covenant. Animals were slain. Pieces were arranged. And then when the servant took the oath of loyalty to the Lord, the servant did so as he was walking between the pieces. Why? Because he's acting out the curse of the covenant. He's saying, I swear loyalty to you, O Lord, and if I do not keep my promises, may I be cut into pieces like these animals. 
And so Abraham figured he was arranging a situation for a covenant seminary, uh, ceremony. And so he cut the pieces up and he expected he'd be called to walk through because lords never walk through the pieces. So he waited and he waited and he waited. Then all of a sudden something happened. Genesis 15 tells us that an incredible darkness came over the earth. And in the midst of the darkness was God in a theophany. And he appeared as a smoking, fiery pillar, just like Mount Sinai later on. And he passed through the pieces and he promised to bless Abraham. And Abraham was startled. And almost every commentator who's ever tried to come to grips with Genesis 15 is startled because what that means is God is not just saying, I will bless you, but he's promising to die if he doesn't bless him. He's promising, promising that he himself will be torn to pieces if he doesn't bless Abraham. Well, that's amazing. Sure, it is amazing. But that's not all. Abraham had two shocks. The first shock was that God went through the pieces. The second shock, God never called Abraham to go through the pieces himself. The ceremony ended, and we're told in chapter 15, verse 18, therefore God made a covenant with Abraham, but this was unheard of. It was amazing for the Lord to come and walk through the pieces, but for the servant not even to make the oath. Do you know what that means? Abraham knew what it meant. Though he didn't see how it could be, it meant that God was making promises for both of them. And he was taking the curse of the covenant on for both of them. What he was doing, he was saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn to pieces if you don't keep your promise. Wow. Oh, Abraham, Abraham, God is saying, and to every one of us, oh, world, I bless you no matter what, even if it means my immortality must become mortal, even if my glory must be drowned in darkness, even if I literally have to be torn to pieces, and he was, because century later, darkness came down on Mount Calvary, thick darkness, and in the midst of the darkness, there was God in the person of Jesus Christ. He was literally being torn to pieces, nails, spears, thorns. Why? He was taking the covenant curse. It was Paul who said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to all of us through Jesus Christ. And do you know what that means? So glad you ask. Here's the answer to all the riddles. Paul says in Romans 4, this is how God can both be both just and justifier of those who believe. This is the ultimate blending of law and love. How so? Don't you see? These are the blessings of God. Are they conditional or are they unconditional? 
And the right answer is yes. Yes. If you said yes, you passed the test. You can leave. No, you can't. You need communion. Um, Because of the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love us absolutely unconditionally. With his perfect life, Jesus completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant. And he earned the blessing, but with his sacrificial death, he completely fulfilled the curse of the covenant. And that leaves blessing for you and me and anyone who comes with empty hands of faith and receives it and asks for it. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that we could be received unconditionally. I'll never forget the first time that hit me. And I was like born again all over again it was a powerful moment and I just said to myself I have never understood that or have seen that and all of a sudden the Bible started making sense to me that's what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 when he says this if you understand this it will lead you into a paradoxical obedience. What do I mean by paradoxical obedience? Well, when you grasp the covenant, and until you grasp the covenant, and until you grasp the gospel, I said you have a tendency to either look at the law as something you have to obey, or as God is going to get you. So either you look at the blessings of God as conditional, so you're always feeling like this. You know, I'm not living up. You always have a sense of condemnation. You basically believe God just loves everybody unconditionally, and you feel like the law is a good thing, but you don't take it very seriously. And when you understand that Jesus Christ fulfills the conditions at radical, infinite cost to himself so that we could be loved unconditionally now what do you look at when you look at the law of God first of all the law of God is the conditions of the covenant and I say I have to take this very seriously because Jesus died to fulfill this for me and it's important so with all my might every day I try to obey with every fiber of my being I try to obey the will and law of God and the terms of the covenant but when I fail and I will fail and I do fail I know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because my obedience is a way of saying thank you to God And it's a way of becoming like Jesus, but it is not a way of me earning my way to God. And so I can live with my failure without it devastating me. Therefore, if you understand the gospel, there's this fascinating balance in your attitude toward the law. You resist sin like crazy. You never have a sense of condemnation and despair when you fall into it. That's amazing. No one else has that kind of balance, and it leads to absolute trust. You know, it's scary to get married. I tell young couples this all the time. I said, it's it's a horror movie. It's a nightmare. (laughs) And you know, they are so smitten and infatuated that I doubt seriously if any of them have ever listened 
to my, you're about to enter a horror movie. <laughs> Two people say this. I'm going to give you everything. How do you know? How do they know about you? How do they know about you? So when two people come together and they say, I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to do everything for you. You're not really sure whether the person is going to do it, are you? You're not really sure. You're not even sure if you're going to do it. It's kind of scary to get married. You know, that's another sermon. But Jesus calls us into a covenant relationship and do you know what he says to us he says I want to marry you I want to come into a legally binding intimate love relationship with me I want to marry you but you don't have to be uncertain because I've already taken the plunge of love I've already gone to the mat I've already died for you we have to trust him what more could anyone do for us than that and thirdly, understanding the covenant and Jesus' part in it leads to church membership. Why? You know why? Because once you understand the gospel, accountability is not a horrible thing. In fact, you also understand accountability is good for you. And therefore, throughout the history of the Bible, you see that people who get into a covenant relationship with each other are also in a covenant relationship with God are also in a covenant relationship with others who have that covenant relationship with God and they're accountable to other believers. They don't just come to church like a consumer, but they covenant and they say, I'm accountable, I support, I'm responsible here. In other words, they join the church. They don't come, they don't just come. Do you understand the gospel? That's one of the implications. Finally, getting serious about God. Modern spirituality gives you a wispy God who's kind of anything you want him to be. But covenant theology gives you a crunchy God. <laughs> a God who is real and a God who bites back. C.S. Lewis put it something like this, and I quoted this not long ago. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through everyone, a vast power which we can all tap, best of all. But a living God pulling at the other end of the cord, approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, the covenant lord, the husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing you really find him, we never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he finds you. If there's a God, you are, in a sense, alone with him. You cannot put him off with speculations about your neighbor's hypocrisy or memories of what you have read in books. What with all the chatter and hearsay count, when the anesthetic fog we call the real wor world fades away and the divine presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable, I would invite you into a serious covenant relationship with God that is precisely what this book the Bible is about what this particular book in the Bible Hosea is about but what Hosea does 
is he opens his heart, the heart of God. God reveals himself toward his covenant people. And there's one other thing I want to say before I quit, and I'll say this as rapidly as I can. And it, I read another passage for you, and I just want to, re- he talks about betrothing. Not only does God go after his people, not only does he woo them, not only does he allure them, not only does he entice them, not only does he come after them, but he betrothes them to himself again. And you know betrothal is far more than what we would call engagement. It's everything marriage is except for consummation of the physical relationship. And so God has entered into this relationship with his people. And it's a, it's a perfect kind of bliss. But coming three times in quick succession is the word betrothed. And it gives an eagerness and a warmth to what is promised. It makes a new beginning with all the freshness of first love rather than weary patching up of differences. And this is appropriate since the new covenant brings with it new life. Betrothal goes further than the courtship step of verse 14. It's a step that is far more decisive. And again, we've talked about that. But all betrothal involves what? A bride price, a dowry. And so you remember when David uh, was betrothed to Saul's uh, daughter, Michael, the barbarous price demanded of him was 100 Philistine foreskins. What a price. But in this passage, Hosea gives us five qualities listed here ranging from righteousness to faithfulness that are regarded as the bride price which God the suitor brings with him. The metaphor is imperfect, the same as the ransom metaphor in Mark chapter 10. There is no father of the bride to receive the gift, but even in literal betrothals, the bride herself is given the dowry. And certainly she is the beneficiary here. Listen. So the promise overflows with generosity. It's all of grace, and it clothes itself in new covenant wedding garb. And it makes three things very plain, which are the three points. The union is permanent, the union is intimate, and the union owes everything to God. But what, are, what is the betrothal gift? What are the qualities that God's going to bring to his side of the marriage? Are these qualities which God brings... Or are they qualities which he also implants within us, his people? And the answer is yes, both. Righteousness, steadfast love, the rest are preeminently the very stamp and character of God. And it was the lack of them on Israel's side, not on his, that had wrecked the marriage in the first place. So God's gift is he will not only be to us all of these things, but he's going to impart them to us so that his bride will no longer... Uh, in fundamental discord with him and at odds with herself. It is another way of saying God will put his law within his people and write it on his heart. Unwrapping, so to speak, the five-fold gift, the first one we find is righteousness, Sadiq, a warmer and more positive thing than we could ever dare hope. Far from being a cold rectitude preoccupied with keeping its hands clean, true righteousness is active and generous. Whether it is seen in God or man, its meaning 
has to be found in the nature of God rather than in the customs and speculations of man. However noble and splendid these thoughts may be, God's righteousness is creative, stepping in to put the very worst things right. It's often paired with salvation. It's often called deliverance or vindication. And this is something that captures a never, another important point. In every sense, righteousness is a gift from God, and never more so when it means bestowing his acceptance and acquittal on us. Paul uses the expression justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The second thing he gives is justice, misfought. And this too has its roots in God and its fruits displayed in us. At the bottom it means the rulings of a judge. And while a human judge may be shallow and unfair, God's justice is like the depths of the sea. Vast, profound, inexhaustible in wisdom. Whether he's pronouncing a verdict or revealing his will for us. But the Lord demands... In Hosea, that justice and righteousness are seen not only as the Lord's demands, but also his gifts, certainly to be worked on and cultivated, but gifts nonetheless. Then he mentions steadfast love, kessed. And it might be less cumbersomely, cumbersomely called devotion or true love, loving kindness, mercy. All of those things. It implies the love and loyalty which partners in marriage or covenant owe to one another. And so it has special relevance to Hosea. He had been denied that by Gomer. But it's God's bridal gift. He gives it to his people. The first, fourth word is mercy. Heartfelt compassion. The names of the children speak of them. Lo Ruhamah, not pitied, becomes on the other hand pitied. But once again, the dowry cannot make a message unless it also works an inward miracle. The people seen in chapter 4 treat compassion only as weakness unless they're given a heart for it. And Zephaniah or Zechariah showed just what they had thought of justice, steadfast love, and mercy. The heart of God's, the heart of stone would never warm towards God or man. Finally, faithfulness. And this is the key. This is the key. Of all the qualities, this is most clearly lacking in a partner who has quit. Other faults may put a marriage under strain. This one is decisive. God, of course, had been faithful all along under endless provocation. Therefore, once again, the betrothal gift must not only be what he himself displays, but what he himself implants. And then he promises we will know the Lord, the intimacy of the relationship. Now, what do I want to say about this as we close it up? And it's this. All of those covenant qualities that God brings to the relationship, the covenant relationship he gives to his people, are gifts of God, but they're also planted within us. And so what we have is both justification on the one hand, we have sanctification on the other hand, and our responsibility in our covenantal relationship with the Lord is to develop these qualities into our lifestyle. We are to be righteous. We are to be just. We are to be merciful. We are to have steadfast love. We are to be faithful. 
Where do we get the power to do it? God gives it to us. We don't have it within us. But he gives it to us, working it in, so that we can work it out and cultivate it and develop it. For it is God who works in you the willingness to accomplish everything that he's put in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. That's precisely what Hosea is saying. So let's bow our heads, please. Are you in a covenantal relationship with God? Because if you're not in a covenantal relationship with God, you're in a covenantal relationship with somebody. And the only safe place to be, the only ark that can withstand the flood is being in union with Christ. The only hope is that our Savior walked between those pieces of the animal and took our judgment and gave us his loyalty, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. He gave us his. I encourage you today to enter into a covenant relationship with God by saying, I repent of my sins. I come to you, Lord Jesus, bringing nothing. I am needy. I am broken. Please, enter into a relationship with me and save me. And help me live in a way that will bring glory and pleasure to you. Father, we do pray that people will hear the call today and we pray that as we continue to worship and as we give of our tithes and offering, we would do so because of our covenant responsibilities with you because we are so dearly graced and loved. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.